I'll say welcome here, even though I'm a guest too. But uh, anyways, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors at Mountain View and been there for a long time. I'll put it like that. And uh, it's great to, to be with you at Sunnyside. This is my first time inside the new place. This is awesome. I love it. Congratulations, everybody. Uh, last time I was here was December, and we were outside. It was freezing cold. It was really fun. It was a great day. Uh, it's my only time preaching in a down jacket, probably ever, I guess. But, uh, but this, is, this is awesome, and this is wonderful. So I love, uh, love working with Pastor Ken. I was just thinking this morning, literally just thinking, so it's not like I have a picture. Pastor Ken kind of looks like Kelly Slater, the 11-time world uh, surf champion, doesn't he? You guys should do a side-by-side picture sometime. I think he kind of has a likeness there. A little slimmer, but, but yeah. You guys should uh, do that sometime. I don't have any savvy to do that kind of tech stuff. I'm too old. I encourage you to open up uh, your Bibles. We're continuing in this series uh, called Dangerous Prayers. And the, the idea, you know, b- behind the danger is not that they're literally, you know, put your life in danger, dangerous prayers. But that these prayers that we're looking at are dangerous in the sense that they're risky, right? That we, we make ourselves vulnerable to God when we pray these kinds of prayers that we've been looking at. And in that sense, they're dangerous. Uh, In a deeper sense, of course, they're not dangerous at all because there's no safer place than to put yourself in the hands of God and take a risk with our Heavenly Father. Uh, But that's what we mean by by this series. And this prayer that we're looking at today, this is the most dangerous prayer, I think. We're getting to the pinnacle of prayer, in my opinion, because I think that this is the most important prayer ever prayed by the most important prayer, uh, Jesus. And this is his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, it's in Matthew chapter 25, and I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles. I want to read the passage to you. Often when this passage is looked at, and rightly so, you can look at the disciples and what they did or didn't do in this passage. Today I'm going to focus mostly on uh, Jesus' prayers because of this series that we're in. And I encourage you with me to let's approach this passage with just the holy awe that this passage is due. Um, If there was ever a place in the New Testament to say, take off your shoes, this is holy ground, the way God did to Moses at the burning bush, I think this is one of those passages. Um, We're getting this incredibly intimate picture of uh, the deepest point of sorrow and suffering in Jesus' life. And uh, I'm a crier anyways, and now preaching on this passage, tears are going to come, just relax, it's going to be awesome. Um, this, This passage deserves... Uh, deserves some tears. Uh, So enjoy it as we meditate on it and allow the Lord to speak to you. So reading from Matthew chapter 26, starting with verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with them, that's the disciples, to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, And he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. 
Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Then he returned to them again, and he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. The real dangerous prayer is that phrase, right? Father, let your will be done, not mine. Right? That's a prayer of surrender, just as that song that we sang talks about. And that's where we take risk when we pray from our heart, Lord, your will be done, not mine. Now, there's a very shallow way, obviously, of doing that that's not from their heart, from our heart, that still maintains control. We know when we do that, when we're lying in prayer, right? <laughs> that's a very dangerous prayer, too, <laughs> to try and fake it with God. <laughs> Don't do that. Do this kind of dangerous prayer. And, but when we do it from our heart, we know that there's risk. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So just a couple of things to observe, right? The first is that Jesus is wrestling in prayer, right? As the implications of his sacrifice for us start to bear down on him. That's what's happening in the garden. This is right after the meal that he shared with the disciples. He knows where he's going. He knows what's going to happen. He's about to be arrested and have all the sequences that lead to the cross. And here's this sort of still moment where he's got time alone with God. And the weight of what he's about to do starts to come down. And you see the emotion there, the wrestling, right? The words like anguished, distressed, soul crushed with grief to the point of death. I'll just tell you, I've never experienced that. People talk about something that's soul crushing. Usually it's like I have a really mean boss at work and it's horrible, right? Which, you know, it does bum you out. It's a drag. But this is another level of soul crushing, right? If you've lost a child as a parent, that's a soul crushing loss, right? There are other things that are in that kind of range. Uh, And if you've experienced that, you know, I pray that the Lord gives you comfort in that. And you can know that Jesus has experienced that kind of deep grief. He's broken like that in this moment. Uh, Luke adds that angels came to minister to him and that he's in such agony that he's sweating like drops of blood. It's not that he's sweating drops of blood, but that, you know, he's in anguish and it's pouring off him like blood. So why was Jesus in such agony? That's a very, very important question, right? It's not because he was afraid that he was going to die. It's not that it's because he knew he was going to be beaten or that he was going to be whipped, right? Or that he was going to be interrogated publicly. Jesus never displayed any kind of concern about death. He had no fear of it. He's the son of God. So it's not that. So what is it? And I think there's, there's two ways that we can answer the question. And they're, they're both right. And they, they, they go together. I think you'll see that. The first is that 
It's the weight of our sin coming upon him, right? Here's the spotless, sinless son of God, and he's starting to experience the weight, not just of one other bad person's sin, but every one of our sins, right? The shame that comes along with having committed that kind of sin, right? The sense of guilt, the sense of condemnation, right? The sense of being cursed, the filth of those sins, those are starting to come down on Jesus. He's starting to feel the weight of that, and that's starting to crush him. And so we talk about Jesus' sacrifice for us being a substitution for us, that he dies in our place, that he dies for our sins. And that substitution begins here in the garden. So that's one of the reasons why. Related to that is the imminent separation from the Father that he's about to experience. And to, in my mind, this is an even deeper sense of brokenness, right? It's an even deeper source of that soul-crushing experience that Jesus had. As if it's not enough that all of our sins go on him. But because of that, as a result of that, he's going to be separated in his fellowship from the Father. That's something that we can't identify with, right? We, we could identify a little bit when we've been really broken by our sin. So we, a, a little bit of that feeling, but being separated from God the Father, where a relationship has existed in the Trinity for all eternity, no, we have, you don't even conceive of what kind of suffering that is. There's a, a great song that's long past now. I can't find it anywhere, even on Spotify, but by a guy named Bob Fitz, and it's called Gethsemane. And he sings, he, he sings a song, and it's basically Jesus in this moment, right? So it's Jesus' words. And it just pours out in such excellent detail the agony that Jesus is feeling as he's talking to the Father and says, you know, we've been one together since the beginning of time through all eternity and to think that today we must both turn away breaks my heart in two. Can't I be with you? And it just captures this agony of Jesus knowing that he's going to be separated from his father uh, because of that sin. That's why Jesus is feeling the way he's doing. He's feeling. Uh, and that should do something to us, right? It, it breaks our heart too because it's our Savior who's going through this and he's doing it for us. But it also fills us with incredible awe and appreciation. Unbelievable. How could the Son of God give up his relationship with the Father for us? Right? That's why the Bible always talks about love in terms of Jesus' example on the cross. How do we know what love is? because of what God has done for us on the cross. That's the definition of love. It's not sort of how warm and fuzzy and sappy it is, right? It's how sacrificial the love is. This love that's willing to die uh, for someone else. And this is part of our amazing gospel, right? This is at the heart of what it means to become a Christian. When, it, when an individual begins to understand, you don't fully understand when you become a Christian, but you understand enough to know Jesus has died for me. Jesus has died in my place. He's taken my sins upon himself. That actually happened at the cross. And I can receive forgiveness from him simply by putting my faith and trust in Jesus and believing that he did what he said he did. And he is who he says he is. 
That's the heart of the gospel. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you've never made that decision to respond to that truth and give your life to Christ, you'll have an opportunity at the end. If you have, take joy in that and know that this event is crucial to that being actually the reality, actually being the case as Jesus is suffering here at Gethsemane. In terms of application, you know, what is it for us? Well, none of us is ever going to have to do this. <laughs> you know, that's the good news. We'll talk later. I mean, this is why we celebrate. This is why we praise. But we can wrestle in prayer, and we should wrestle in prayer. And the disciples were meant to wrestle in prayer along with Jesus. You get that picture, right, that he's saying, watch with me, pray with me. It's important for you guys, too, not at the same level, clearly, but he's inviting them to be with him. Prayer is a place where we struggle too, where we wrestle with God, where we struggle with God's will and trying to sort it out. That's okay. It's good. Like sometimes prayer should be really frustrating. If it never is, don't be satisfied with a shallow prayer that never gets to the nitty gritty, that never gets to a place where there's some distress, right? There's some anguish. There's some frustration with God. God wants us to interact with him in prayer like that. I encourage you to do it. I encourage you, as one practical way to do that, is, is keep a journal when you pray. That after you've prayed with the Lord, like write down, what happened? What did God say? Somewhere, you know, we do shape journaling anyway, so it should, you can just do it in there. But keep a record of those kinds of things so that you know and can remember what's gone on in prayer, especially in those seasons of struggle where you wrestle with God and then God speaks and says something, gives you some direction. And focus. Second, Jesus boldly asks his father if there's any other way. Right? He says in the first uh, prayer that's actually recorded, it starts there in verse, uh, verse 39. He says, My father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Right? Before he says, Your will be done, he asks for what he wants, which is, Is there some other way that we can do this? Right? That's an incredibly bold prayer, right? Jesus has already lived for three years. He's moving very, very close to his death. And right at that point, he's asking, Father, is there some other way that this could happen? And I love that boldness, right? Even in the midst of it being yielding to the Father's will. And the second time, the second thing that he prays, right? He says, again, my Father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. So he's moving towards that surrender, knowing there really is no other way. But it doesn't stop him from asking that first time. And I think that's important for us to observe. Now, what he asks for is, right, this cup of suffering to be taken away from me. And this cup is mentioned all the time in the Old Testament and in a variety of places in the New Testament, including a couple of times in Revelation. This cup of suffering, which is a cup of God's wrath against sin. That's really what he's talking about. Father, this cup of your wrath against sin that I'm going to drink, I'm going to take your wrath on me, even though I haven't sinned. If, is there some other way than for me to have to experience that? But there isn't. And so he surrenders. Now, this is something that the father and the son agree together, right? Right? It's not the father imposing his wrath on a resistant son in the sense that, you know, well, God up there, the father, yeah, he's kind of scary. Jesus is really nice. I'm going to hang out with him. No, no, they're, they're both on the same team, right? They know 
that this wrath has to be dealt with against sin because both Jesus and the Father are totally holy in addition to the Holy Spirit. And that wrath against sin comes from all three of them, has to be dealt with by all three of them. And the Son is the one who chooses to take the brunt of that wrath against sin so that we don't have to experience. That's the cup that he's talking about. But Jesus' resolve, it it grows, right? The second time, he says, if it can't pass, then thy will be done. And then by the third time, after he's done praying, right, you get this sense of resolve with the disciples. The hour's come. Get up, let's go. He's ready. He knows this is the path that he has to take. For us, I think there's meaningful application here too, right? That we can ask boldly in prayer. We're taught that in the book of Hebrews very directly to come boldly before God. And the model for it is here. Here's a situation where God's will is becoming clear. It's not what Jesus wants. And he boldly asks, could there be another way? Well, that means it's okay for us to ask, right? (laughs) Lord, is there some other way that this could get worked out? Because it would be great if there was a different solution than the one that seems to be the one that I have to do. And, you know, inside you kind of know, yeah, I I need to make this right. But like, oh, this is going to hurt so much. Lord, is there any other way besides me having to do this? Most of the time, no, there isn't going to be another way. But there's no harm in asking. I guess that's the simple point that I'm making, right? In prayer, there is no harm. There's nothing wrong with Jesus saying, Father, is there another way? And there's nothing wrong with us asking, all right, is there another way? Is there a path of deliverance? Is there a path of escape out of this? It's why we cry out, Father, you know, save me. Father, deliver me. Father, heal me. All those kinds of passionate prayers that we pray are for deliverance, are for circumstances to be changed, for our situation to change. Jesus himself prayed like that, and that's part of why we have the freedom to do that. And then we yield. But Lord, of course, if it's no, that's fine too, because I want your will to be done. And we only pray that if we uh, really have a growing confidence that, you know, the Father's will is always going to be the best will for me. I try to figure out what the best will of God is and try to listen and pay attention. But the Father is always going to know that perfectly. And so to surrender to him is to acknowledge that he's our good father. He's going to do what's right for us, no matter how our prayers begin. Third, Jesus surrenders his will to his father and accepts the mission, right? This is that process that he's been walking through that we've already talked about. This is the astonishing thing here, and it illustrates the gospel so well, right? Is that here's Jesus, right? The one person who never should have had his prayer answered with a no. Never, right? Because he lived the perfect life that we could never live, right? There's no reason why he should get turned down any prayer that he asked. And none of his prayers ever were let down with a no, except this one, right? This is the one prayer that he willingly submits to a no answer from the Father, and that opens the door for all of us to hear a yes answer when we pray, right? Because for us, there is absolutely no reason why God should ever say yes to any one of our prayers. None. The only reason is because Jesus said no to Jesus' prayer in that moment. And that turned the situation around. 
So we have a unique situation as believers. I do want to encourage you in that. You know, we're, we're in a culture still today where when they do surveys and ask people if they pray to God, 90% of people say they pray almost every day or something, you know. And it's easy for us to think, well, hey, man, that's just awesome. You know, that's great. You know, everybody should talk to God. And, and like, look, I'm glad that people acknowledge that there is a God. But we would be confused if we thought that the prayers that are offered by people who have not surrendered to Jesus Christ are somehow just the same as our prayers as followers of Jesus. They're not. The only way that the Father responds to anybody's prayer is through Christ, right? Now, I'm not saying it's not hopeless for people to pray a prayer of surrenders. Absolutely should. The Father relates to that. He reaches out in grace. But it all flows ultimately through Jesus Christ, right? Prayer only becomes meaningful, only becomes powerful in the context of what Jesus has done and to the extent that we surrender to him. A heart unsurrendered to Christ cannot pursue a relationship with the Father in prayer. That's not possible. Because Jesus is the only way that we can enter into a relationship and certainly talk in any kind of meaningful way to our Father in heaven. So that's not to, you know, beat up the real world. That's to just encourage us. Like, wow, what an unbelievable privilege we have to truly pray in right relationship with our Father. And that's the great news that we want to share with others. That's why we want to invite people to come and join us with Good Friday and Easter. Hear that gospel message so that their prayers can move into that realm of actual prayers of relationship with a loving Father through Christ. So Jesus surrenders his will and starts to reverse the curse, right? It's amazing when you think that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve fail by basically going, my will be done, <laughs> and doing what they want, right? And now we're back in another garden, and Jesus is reversing the curse of the fall, going, Father, your will be done, not mine. It's amazing good news for us. So this is how we follow. Uh, this is how we experience prayer. Tim Keller, a great book on prayer, says it very much what I'm saying here. He says, Jesus was the only human being in history who deserved to have all his prayers answered because of his perfect life. Is that great? Jesus' prayers were given the rejection that we sinners merit so that our prayers could have the reception that he merits. Isn't that good? Jesus' prayers were given the rejection that we sinners merit so that our prayers could have the reception that his prayers merit. That's the astonishing thing that happens for us as believers now when we pray, because we pray in Christ. It's not just us praying. Jesus prays with us, through us, by his spirit, sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalves. So our prayers are bound up into the prayers of Jesus himself. Right? That's true. It, like, really. <laughs> I encourage you to pray in that way. It will give you fresh courage and strength. Yeah. Andrew Murray in his book, With Christ in the School of Prayer, puts it this way. He says, we deserve that God should turn a deaf ear to us and never listen to our cry. But Christ comes and suffers this for us too, right? We're the ones who should have been said no to, but Christ said it in our place and surrendered himself. So when we challenge each other to surrender, when we sing songs of surrender, we're not challenging ourselves to do anything that Jesus hasn't done at a far deeper level than we can ever do, 
right? This is how Jesus lived his entire life in surrender to the Father, right up to that moment at the end of his life when the greatest surrender was required, and he could give it because it wasn't the first time that he had surrendered his will to the Father. He had a lifestyle of surrender. And that's what the Lord invites us to, right? This isn't, surrender isn't something that you do once. <laughs> it would be great if we could advertise, hey, become a Christian. You surrender your life to God, and then the rest of the time, it's all on you. You just get to live your best life. Woohoo! No, <laughs> it's not like that. <laughs> you surrender your life to Christ, and then we begin a whole lifestyle of surrender, right? Of again yielding to the Father and walking with Him. When Connie and I were uh, first married, after you know just a couple of years, we were excited to have kids, and uh, it took us nine years uh, before we had our first child, and. Those were years of uh, anguished prayers and years of needing to surrender. Say, okay, Lord, you know, you don't owe us kids, <laughs> but we're asking, <laughs> but we surrender to you. We don't understand what's happening. Why, why is this taking so long? And going through what all, you know, parents want or would be parents who want to have kids and can't for a variety of different reasons. Um, but it was a season of having to re-surrender that dream to the Lord uh, and not become bitter against God for not, not giving us what we wanted, right? Surrendering to His will. And over time, the Lord blessed us. And we have three grown kids now, but it was a long season of surrender. When I first came to go to school down here in Fresno, California, at Fresno Pacific at the seminary, I had moved from Vancouver up in Canada and had every intention of coming down here to go to school and then move back home. And uh, when I was moving towards graduation, and it's like, it seems like that's not going to happen. And I had to go through, and Connie as well, just a process of, okay, we have to surrender that to the Lord because we just totally figured, well, that's what we're going to do. That's what's going to happen. You know, that's where all our family is and, the, you know, X, Y, Z, all the great reasons why it totally makes sense. And realize, okay, God is saying, no, let my will be done. I'm going to do something different. Uh, and now we've been here for close to 30 years. So I think we're fully acclimatized. To <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was, a, it was a process of surrender. Uh, I don't know what your issue of surrender is today. If it's a career issue for your future, right, that you need to surrender to the Lord as a part of praying, again, doesn't mean you don't boldly ask for what you want, but then you have to, with an open hand, surrender to the Lord. Maybe it's the future of one of your kids, and you're realizing, I have to surrender the future of my child to the Lord. I cannot try and control that as if somehow I would know better than my father what the future of my child holds. Maybe it's another close relationship that you're trying to do everything you can, you know, to repair and make work. But part of in the asking has to be, okay, Lord, I surrender this relationship fresh to you. It's yours. I don't own it. I don't, I don't demand anything from it. There's nothing that you owe me out of this relationship. I surrender it over to you. Could be so many different things. I don't know what those are, but I want to encourage you to do that surrendering today. I invite you to stand. I invite the worship team to come on up.
So maybe there is something that, that needs an act of surrender, right? Not just sort of a mental agreement to surrender, but an act of surrender to, to come forward and stand with open hands or kneel with open hands. And, you know, out loud, you don't have to shout it, you know, but out loud, Lord, I surrender blank to you. And to do that from our heart. So I want to encourage us to respond once the worship starts and take that opportunity to do that. For all of us, I want to encourage us, let's pray with passion, right? Not being afraid to wrestle with God when the time comes to wrestle about something tough. To pray uh, with boldness and confidence and ask for what we want, even as we're surrendering and, and yielding, but we're bold in asking the Father. He wants to hear that ask from us. And then praying with a surrendered heart. And doing it in Christ, in Jesus, because he's already done that at such a spectacular level that goes beyond our capacity. Let's pray.